Wasn't that good? Yeah. A lot of moving parts today. A lot of different players. I mean, just transporting that beautiful instrument there has to be a lot of work. Not to mention all the goodies out there in the hallway. It's good to be here in the house of the Lord. It's good to be with you again. I know that uh, I've been invited to give a message once a month, and the last time I was here was early October, and now it's late November, so it's been like a long time since I've been with this church family. And I just want to let you know that over the last couple of months, of course, my wife has been re-diagnosed with cancer, but we got through our first scan last week, and they showed that the cancer is stable, and so that is a thanksgiving on my heart today. And we're going to have a time towards the, end of, uh, towards the end of our service today in which all of you can have a moment where you can confess to the Lord what's really on your heart and in a, in a time of thanksgiving. But you can also hear my voice. My voice today isn't so sharp. We had our first basketball game Tuesday night against Couts. And you can tell by the sound of my voice how well my boys played. Okay? It wasn't good. So we're going we're gonna to get through this the best we can. So here we are, Thanksgiving Day. And Thanksgiving Day is a wonderful day, a time of food and fellowship and football and air hockey in Grandma's basement and all kinds of good things. And we should be thankful for these good things. These things are gifts. Think about maybe some of you grandparents in the room. Some of you grandparents, maybe you gave that granddaughter Tiffany a bike at Christmas. And what happens a couple months later? Grandma calls up daughter, just say your name is Deborah. Deborah, how does Tiffany like the new bike? Oh, mom, she rides it all the time. When they, that phone call is ended, grandma says, George, Tiffany absolutely loves the bike we gave her. What does that do to a grandparent's heart? It fills it with all kinds of joy. For some of you parents, maybe you gave that teenage son of yours a Notre Dame football jersey for Christmas. And then the next year when the season rolls around, every single Saturday he's wearing that Notre Dame football jersey. And you're like, ah, he's appreciating and loving the gift that I gave him. And that's the way our Heavenly Father looks at us, especially on a day like today, where people are, are filled with joy, we're eating good food, and God wants to say, yes, enjoy these gifts, and I and I'm filled with joy watching you enjoy these gifts. So today is a wonderful day of Thanksgiving. And so where does Thanksgiving start? You invited a teacher to be here today. You're going to get a little bit of a lesson. Oh, here's the pilgrims. Pilgrims. But before the pilgrims, we've got to think about what happened in 1863. In 1863, our country could not have been in more despair we were embroiled in the Civil War. Hundreds of thousands of lives had been lost, and people's lives would, would be forever changed because they were maimed from war. And even in this, this dark time of our American history, Abraham Lincoln called the nation together and said, we need to have a national, national day of, of Thanksgiving. And of course, what's going to get attached to that is what happened a couple hundred years before with the pilgrims coming to America and having that Thanksgiving feast. Now let's just kind of, one, one more little history lesson. Let's take a look at this, this wonderful painting right here. This painting was put in our United States Capitol in 1843. 
So 20 years before Abraham Lincoln gave that proclamation, this painting was put in the rotunda of our United States Capitol. Next week, Wednesday, I'll be with eight students from Ileana in that rotunda, and I'll be looking at these eight very distinct, beautiful paintings, and they're huge. It's bigger than that screen. These beautiful paintings that tell the story of our American history. That's right. In 1840, the founding forefathers had pretty much moved on. But now there was a second generation of, of leaders in our country, and they did not want us to forget our heritage. So they commissioned these eight paintings to be given to the rotunda so that hundreds of thousands of people from generations to follow would walk into the United States Capitol and see the history and the devotion of these early, early founders. And one painting that they wanted to really, really give credence to was this painting right here. It's the pilgrims getting ready to leave the Netherlands. That's right, they had been in England for a while, and then they went to the Netherlands, hoping to worship freely. But then, one of the most horrific wars that ever broke out was called the Thirty Years' War. And in the Thirty Years' War, these Calvinists, who share so much of the same world and life view as we did, they said, we could no longer be here. We have to go somewhere else where we can worship freely. And so they got on board the Speedwell. And that's what this painting is. This painting, by the way, it's not just one of eight paintings in our rotunda of the U.S. Capitol. It's actually one of three that are a deeply, deeply religious perspective. So three of those eight show a deep religious foundation of what our country was started on. Now, part of this painting is missing. If you look in the top left corner, the top left corner of that painting on the sail, it says the words, God with us. Think about that. Thousands of people go into our United States Capitol every single day. They see this painting of the pilgrims getting ready to leave Delft, Netherlands, and head to the New World. And what does it show? It shows them opening up Scripture and reading Scripture for God's providence to protect them on that voyage. That's what thousands of people see a day. And thousands of people see those words, God with us. Well, I think we know a lot of the story that follows after that. The Speedwell has a little bit of issues. It was supposed to sail in tandem with the Mayflower, but they had to pretty much dock the, the Speedwell and then all jump on the crowded Mayflower and make their way to Virginia. But as they made their way to Virginia, they're blown off course, and they end up in Massachusetts. And so when we think about the history books, many of you may have grown up with this history book. That's right, this old, old history book. And some of you are like, I had that book. I don't feel that old. Well, in this history book, what does it say about the Mayflower? What does it say? It says in there that they signed this special agreement called the Mayflower Compact. And here's what it says in the Mayflower Compact. And you'll find it in the history book. It says, In the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our Lord King James by the grace of God of Great Britain and Ireland, King, defender of the faith, having undertaken this voyage for the glory of God, 
and the advancement of the Christian faith. I'll read that again. For the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. And honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in northern parts of Virginia. Do by these present solemnly and mutually in the presence of Almighty God and one another form this covenant. Wow. That history book has some nice things about God sprinkled in, doesn't it? Then we look at a history book from about 15 years, oh, 15 years ago. And 15 years ago, the new history books say this about the pilgrims. A group of separatists who came to be called the pilgrims decided to make a new home in North America. They, would, they hoped that they would be free to worship as they wanted. And in 1620, a group of roughly 100 pilgrims set sail for New England on the Mayflower. That's it. And you don't even want to know what's coming out in the brand new history books. <laughs> Think about this. The first history book, a few sprinklings about God. This history book, just a couple little, little doses. And modern history books, nothing. Nothing. Nothing about God's providence. Nothing about God's care for his people. Nothing about how when these pilgrims landed here, one of the first things that they built was a meeting house. That's right, a place where they could train their children how to read the scriptures and also worship. Before they built their own structures, they built a place of worship. But the pilgrims weren't the first to have the first Thanksgiving. No. The first Thanksgiving took place here. About 10 miles away from Jamestown, the first colony, English colony, formed in America. Two years before the pilgrims had that Thanksgiving, which that feast last, lasted about three days, before they had that Thanksgiving feast up there in Massachusetts, in 1619, settlers arrived on this estate. Of course, the house would be built a few years later, but they landed here in what would become known as the Berkeley, the Berkeley Plantation. And before they left for America, the king... And the company that financed these Christians who would land here, they said, when you arrive, the first thing you must do is have a national day of thanksgiving and prayer. That's right. So since 1619, they've been worshiping and having thanksgiving here. But we thought it was always the pilgrims. Think about that. Before they left... You must have a Thanksgiving day of prayer. Well, what if we lose half of our people on the voyage over here? doesn't matter. When you get there, you have a Thanksgiving prayer. What happens if, if half of our possessions get destroyed by water or flood? doesn't matter. When you get to the new world, have a Thanksgiving day of prayer. So we can thank JFK for setting the record straight. Because this is what John F. Kennedy said. John F. Kennedy said... Over three centuries ago, our forefathers in Virginia and Massachusetts, far from home, in a lonely wilderness, set aside a Thanksgiving time. They gave thanks for their safety, the health of their children, the fertility of their fields, and the, for the love which bound them together, and for the faith which united them with their God. 
Thank you, JFK, for setting that straight. Now, some of you might know of the Berkeley Plantation here because that would be the ancestral home of William Henry Harrison, the first territorial governor of Indiana. And every day when I drive to work from Lansing to Dyer, I pass into, into Indiana, and then it says the name of his grandson, who also became president, Indiana. Welcome to Indiana, home of Pre President Benjamin Harrison. So think about that, Hoosiers in this room. You are all tied to the first Thanksgiving. Nobody gives me a woo-woo-woo. Okay. I thought there would be a little bit more Hoosier pride in here. There we go. But that first Thanksgiving wasn't in Virginia. It wasn't in Massachusetts. Thanksgiving came over 3,000 years ago because our God loves to celebrate and our God, when he was putting together that nation of Israel, he gave them times in which they would take off work, times in which they would celebrate. So they're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of, the Feast of Trumpets, and they're going to celebrate the, the Passover, and they're going to have food, and they're going to have time off, and they're going to have fellowship, and they're going to have two, actually two, Thanksgiving feasts. One to celebrate two different times of the harvest. The first one up here was called the Feast of the First Fruits. So think about what the Feast of the First Fruits was. Here's your beautiful field. It's all ready to be harvested. Go out into that field and glean some of the first rows. And when we have these baskets of plenty, we bring this before the altar of God and we say, God, this is yours. This belongs to you, the First Fruits. That's what we oftentimes call our offering. A few moments ago, we took our offering here. And that offering is supposed to be the first fruits. It's supposed to be off the top like it was for those fields. So young people in the room, maybe you got your first job and you have that car. Before you pay for that car insurance, before you pay for the fuel, before you pay for that car payment, before you take your date out in that car, you're supposed to give from that paycheck the first fruits. Not do everything and whatever's left over goes to God, but everything comes off the first fruits. And we pray that that's what we do in our own lives. Do we give to God off the top, off those first fruits? The Feast of Weeks was another harvest feast, just like the first one. And they were supposed to do the same thing go in there collect the grain, give it to God, then go back in the field, gather some more, and have a celebration. Wait a minute. For a half German, half Dutchman, that does not sound good. We don't rest until the work is, is done. On Friday night, it's when you go out. On Saturday night, it's when you go out. When the work for the week is done. But God says no. Go out there, glean from that harvest, enjoy time off, enjoy celebration, and the work will still be there. And then go out there into the harvest and collect more, collect it all. But Lord, what if a, a swarm of locusts comes in and destroys it before we get out there? Sh should we really be celebrating before we go and glean it all? Yes. 
But what if a band of marauders from a faraway land comes in and, and, and burns our fields? God said, you go and celebrate first. It'll be there. Trust me. I will provide for you. Look on these fields right now. I have made all of that harvest grow for you. You can't trust me that the time will be there for you to gather in the harvest. So the people of Israel learn to grow up with that world and life view. That world and life view that God will provide. That God will provide. Now we know great King David wrote many psalms. And some of these psalms we see into David's soul. Psalm 105, he penned it as a thanksgiving psalm, as a thanksgiving song that would be sung over and over and over every year when the children of Israel would have the Feast of the First Fruits or the Feast of Weeks. So here we are, 3,000 years later, doing the same thing that King David did, looking at his psalm as we celebrate Thanksgiving. Let's begin this psalm. Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name. That word, give thanks. It's actually a Hebrew word, yadah. And what does yadah mean? Yadah means to confess. Confess that God is the source of all your thanksgiving. Sometimes we think about confession just being uh, something that we have in our hearts and that we want to confess our sins to God. But confessing is also declaring something. And declaring here is what David did. David declared that everything belongs to God first and I'm giving thanks. That's what the word yada means. And this, this morning we opened up this service with Psalm 136. The same word, yada. It means to confess and declare that nothing is mine, it all belongs to him, and I only give a little bit back. Think about a toddler. A toddler at the kitchen table. And a toddler, as he's eating his food, he looks up at his dad, and he gives his dad maybe a little spoonful. He's kind of mimicking, and he gives his dad a carrot, as if somehow he's giving back to his dad. Uh-uh. His dad paid for it, earned the money to make that meal, maybe even prepared it, placed it on the child's table, and even possibly spoon-fed him. Everything first comes from the father, and then the child gives a little back to God. That's what the word yada means. I give thanks to the Lord, call on his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him, sing praise to him. Tell of his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done. His miracles and judgments he's pronounced. O descendants of Abraham, his servants. O sons of Jacob, his chosen one. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word he promised for a thousand generations. It's only been about 150 generations since this time. And King David has said, we got hundreds of generations still to come where our God is faithful. The covenant he made with Abram, the oath he swore to Isaac, he confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. 
Canaan here does not just mean a geographic location. A lot of us are starting to figure out geography of the Middle East because of what we've seen in Israel and especially the Gaza. Canaan actually means blessing. The Lord has given all of you, Community Church, Canaan. He's given you blessing. It's a metaphor for blessing. No different than if somebody said, how's your wife? How's the family doing? Uh, you know what? H how's work going? And if you said, you know what? The Lord blesses me. He gives me manna every day. Does the Lord really give you manna? Does, does bread come floating down from heaven? No. Everybody understands what you mean when you say, the Lord is giving me manna. He's giving me just enough for what I need. And here, the Lord is giving you blessing. Now, in the interest of time, we don't have time to go through this entire psalm. It's a beautiful psalm. And I encourage you today, sometime today, to read the rest of this psalm. Because the rest of the psalm adds to this first part. These first 11 verses, they set the tone for how good God is. How wonderful God is. How he deserves our thanksgiving. But then the rest of the psalm proves it. Think about that today. We love so much to tell somebody, prove it. Oh yeah, I don't agree with you. So somebody whips out their phone and they go to Google and they find the answer right away. There, I'm proving it to you. This past Monday, I was with my Ileana students and we were on a field trip going downtown. And I had a busload of all guys, all senior boys. And these senior boys, they love fantasy football. And so for the whole ride, they're just talking fantasy football, fantasy football. They're talking about Justin Fields. They're talking about Mahomes. And they're talking about quarterbacks in the league and which one is good, which one is bad. And you know what? None of them are proving it. They're just giving opinions. So finally I thought, I'm going to stir the pot a little bit. And I said, you guys have been talking about football a long time. How about we talk basketball? Who's the greatest player, LeBron James or Michael Jordan? Well, now all of a sudden everybody comes unglued because everybody not only has an opinion, they start going to the, the Google on their phone and they start giving proof. Well, LeBron James has this many, you know, this many stats and he has this many championships. Well, look at Jordan with all these MVPs. And what they're doing is they are proving it. What does King David do in Psalm 105? He said, God deserves our thanksgiving and God deserves our praise. And for the rest of the psalm, he proves it. He lists one thing after another. Look how he delivered you from, from Pharaoh's hand. Look how he controlled those, those plagues and how they, they attacked every single one of those Egyptian gods. Look at how faithful he was to Jacob. Look what he did to Father Abraham. One thing after another, David proves it. And on this Thanksgiving Day, look at your own life and look how God proves his faithfulness to you. Look how what we have to be thankful for because our God is a God who loves to deliver his people. And Psalm 105, the rest of the psalm is all about God's deliverance. God loves to be in a position where we say to him, deliver me, because that brings out thanksgiving. When God delivers, that's when thanksgiving follows. And if we think about David and Psalm 105, 
all the Psalms are pretty much David's prayer, prayer journal. Maybe, maybe some of you have a prayer journal. Well, when you read the Psalms of David, it's a prayer journal. And in this deliverance, think about what God has delivered you from. God's delivered you from so many things. He's delivered you from hunger. He's delivered you from loneliness. He's delivered you from the elements. Today, you woke up this morning and it's a little frosty outside and you turn the heat on. And he's delivered you from these things. God has delivered us from the, from, from the simplest things of life. He's delivered us from our addictions. God has delivered us from stained relationships where we've made them really bad. And God has also delivered us from, I could add to this, strained relationships where they're just not what they're supposed to be, but he brought us out of that. God delivers us from our own guilt. God delivers us from our debt. And God delivers us especially from the debt that we owe him. Now, we could go on and on and slide after slide after slide of hundreds, if not thousands of things that God delivers us from. But I think this last one is what we really need to focus on. God delivers us from the debt that we owe him. There's this word, this Greek word that I think a lot of you know the Greek word. It's called Eucharist, okay? And the Eucharist is Greek for thanksgiving. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's a thanksgiving celebration. Have you ever thought about that? The Lord's Supper is a thanksgiving celebration because Eucharist means thanksgiving. We need to celebrate how God has delivered us from the debt that we owe him. I want to show you a couple other things. Of course, when I get invited to speak here, there's always props. So, you can see how good these props are. Look at this fantastic old Tonka truck. Not made with plastic. This was steel from the 1970s. Isn't this in great condition? Now, some of you might there in the audience say, I'm an antique dealer, and that has some really nice patina on it. I can get a lot of top dollar on Facebook Marketplace. No, no. Look at this one. It's nasty. Never used to be this way. When I had these things in the 1970s, they were in beautiful condition. Sure, I would play with them on the outside, but then when I would bring them in, I would take a little wet rag, I would take a, a little Q-tip, and I would clean every little morsel from it. That's right. I used to be a neat freak. Now, if you look at my truck or my classroom or my desk or my, or my garage, you wouldn't know that today, but there was a time in which I took care of this. And then what happened? I got married and had boys. And I thought, you know what, there's going to come a time where my boys, I want them to enjoy that same love that I had with these toys. So I gave them to my boys. And this is what happened. Now, I remember one time, after I'd given this to them, 
it was a summer day, and I do roofing work during the summer, and it was a rainy day, so we kind of shut down the roofing crew for the day, and I went home, and I'm looking out in the backyard at all the rain coming down, and I see those toys out there in the backyard, in the sandbox, in the rain, getting rusty, and now I start coming unglued. And I yell to my wife, get over here, take a look at this. Take a look at this. Look what I value that I gave to them, and they're totally destroying it. Why do I bother? Why do I bother giving them nice toys? Why do they, I bother working hard so that they can have all these kinds of things? Why do I bother? And I'm sure every parent in this room has said the same thing. Or maybe some of you say the same thing about church. Why do I bother with this particular ministry? Why do I bother with this particular? You know, all I do is get phone calls about how people don't like this or people don't like that. Why do I bother? I think about that sometimes when I look at students in Ileana's chapel. We have chapel three days a week. And if we have a, a time for singing and I look around that chapel and I see kids just kind of, I think, what happens if God were to come right here and stand in our presence and look at these young people and say, why do I bother with you? Why do I even bother with you? You don't even want to give me praises for 20 minutes? You can't find it in your heart to give me praises for 20 minutes? Why did I bother? And when it comes down to it, what does Jesus say to us? Jesus says to us, you're worth the bother. And praise be to God that he doesn't say to us, why did I bother? Praise be to God that he says to each one of you in this church community that you were worth the bother. You were worth the sacrifice. And on Thanksgiving Day today, that's what we truly have to be thankful for, that God looks at you and says, you were worth the bother. So grandparents, today, if you're holding that one-year-old grandchild, look down at that grandchild and thank God that that grandchild was worth the bother. When you hear the grandkids in the, in the basement having a ping-pong tournament, take a moment and say, thank you, God, that those grandkids were worth the bother. When you're sitting maybe with family or other friends, maybe just friends are gathering today, and you're sitting around playing Scrabble, and you look at all your friends and say, God, thank you that everyone here is worth the bother. And if those scenarios fit you, great. If those scenarios don't fit you, well, then at least this afternoon or tonight before you lay your head, look in the mirror and look at the person reflected back at you and say, thank you, almighty God, that I was worth the bother. Because on Thanksgiving Day today, there's nothing to be more grateful for than the fact that we were worth the bother. And may all God's people say, amen. Let's pray. Lord of heaven, we come before you with nothing. Everything you have given to us, you already own. And we give a little bit